We do. We all appreciate our moms, don't we? Amen. My, uh, my mom grew up in a family where her dad was an alcoholic, and we'd call that a dysfunctional family, and in many ways it was. Um, but what a, what a gift my mom's been to me that uh, she didn't carry that on, and uh, it didn't shrink her, but it only grew her capacity to love and to pour into her kids. Uh, mothers, you guys uh, all deserve um, so much honor today. We're so appreciative to you. We really are. Um, yeah, you know, I think as a pastor, sometimes people treat me as like a priest where, you know, they come into my office sometimes and just feel like they have to confess their sins. Well, would you guys play that role of priest and I'll be the confessor? <laughs> Yesterday I did a wedding. I've done hundreds of these things, and I got to the end of it. Uh, processional happens, and all of a sudden the father of the bride in the front row is, you forgot the rings! You forgot the rings! I totally forgot to do the exchange of rings. <laughs> I still, I, I'm still feeling sick about that today. Uh, I had him come back out, and, you know, we, I think we made it work, but... It's just a heads up for those of you who want me to do your wedding, okay? <laughs> Sorry, Steve, you, gotta, you have to work with me, man. <laughs> okay, here's the deal. You who, who come to Crossroads just know how we do things here when it comes to the Bible. Uh, we feel like God leads us to a certain book. We don't just kind of open it up and say, let's go here, but... I feel like God leads us to a book, and then we, we, we stay in that book, and we study that book chapter by chapter. Um, there's many reasons as to why we do this, but the main reason we do it is because we feel, rather than going topically, where we choose the topic Sunday by Sunday, it really allows God to set the agenda. Uh, he gets to say, okay, this week it's 1 Corinthians 7, and that's what we're going to be studying today. On Mother's Day. <laughs> um, so I just have to say that we can trust God that he's orchestrating even this, okay? Um, some of you are like, I don't know what's in 1 Corinthians 7. Well, you'll, you'll find out in a real hurry here. <laughs> I'm going to give heads up to parents right now of younger children. Uh, today could be a little bit R-rated. Trust me, I'm going to do my best to keep this thing as PG as possible, Okay. Uh, but we still need to mine the meaning of this text. Okay, so I, you will not offend me right now if you walk out with your kids. You won't offend me at any time in the gathering if you walk out with your kids. Um, sorry about this, but this is where we are. So, 1 Corinthians 7, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Does anybody have one of the uh, church Bibles today? I had to graduate to this Large, large letter edition. <laughs> I've had some scary moments up here, you guys. You've probably seen it where it's like, I can't find it. Where is it? I can't see. So now we have the big letters. <laughs> but what page is it? 927, 1 Corinthians 7. Now for the matters you wrote about. Issue number one, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty 
to his wife. But that's so flattering, isn't it? Hey, man, just fulfill your marital duty. (laughs) And likewise, the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. That, by the way, is a revolutionary statement in first century Roman Empire. That a husband does not have authority over his own body, but he yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Husbands and wives, how much do you do that? Just devote yourselves as a couple to prayer. And then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, just a concession. The first part was a command, but this isn't a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, that each of you, but each of you has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that gift. So now to the unmarried and to the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. But even if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry and to burn passion. This is God's word. You can be seated. Just a little background that I think still most of us are familiar with, but I still want to keep it before us. Uh, Corinth in first century A.D. could be argued easily to be the sex capital of the Roman Empire. Uh, First of all, it was Neocorus, or the Vatican, or the headquarters to the sex god Aphrodite. I wish I had a PowerPoint that I could show you right now, but um, you guys know where the hill is in Grand Rapids, where it kind of goes up on the other side of Michigan. Um, Imagine now if that hill was even 100 feet higher, just kind of overlooking the city, and then up on top of that hill was a temple. A temple, because that's what it was in Corinth. On this high hill on the Acropolis uh, was the temple to Aphrodite. Now, the way that you worshipped this god was to engage in sex with a temple prostitute. In fact, the Roman historian Strabo in his travel memoirs lets us know that a thousand priestess prostitutes served the worship of Aphrodite on this hill. So imagine that. Grand Rapids, high on the hill. This going on. In fact, uh, Strabo tells us that Corinth had this proverb... Not every man can afford a trip to Corinth. Because here's the deal. It was the expectation that every Greco-Roman man would fulfill their obligation to Aphrodite by making their trek to Corinth and having sex with a temple prostitute. Because remember, the people in that day lived in great fear of offending the gods. And this is the way he kept the god Aphrodite happy. That's why Corinth uh, coined the term to Corinthicize. Corinthicize uh, meant having sex with a prostitute. A Corinthian girl was also a common uh, way of saying she, that girl is that kind of girl. 
And so this temple cast this ugly shadow upon the city of Corinth. Now that's what went on at the top of the hill. In the heart of the city was a temple to Apollo, right down on Main Street. And let's just say the same thing is going on at Apollo um, as what's going on at the top of the hill at the temple of Aphrodite, with one exception. Apollo involved the sex trafficking of little boys, making Corinth the hub of first century gay pedophile tourism. That's Corinth. Again, does this sound familiar? I mean, I think we live in Corinth today. Aphrodite is alive and well. Her temple today casts its ugly shadow on our world. Sex is more than just a form of entertainment that we're comfortable with. Sex has become a god we worship. And no longer is it hidden in the back alleys. It's mainstream. It's front and center. It's in our faces everywhere we turn. I still can't get over the fact that when I'm watching a stinking Super Bowl, I mean, need I say any more? Or when I'm just watching the Tigers. And I remember this when my boys were just at that age and all of a sudden the, the commercial for Viagra would come on. Just like, are you kidding me? You're not going to answer these questions? Can't we just watch a Tiger game? I guess the most disturbing reality for me, especially now that my, my kids are getting older, is just what's going on with our kids. It's sad. It's, it, it, it's sad that, that, that uh, Gabe... Uh, you know, confides in me that, that girls have asked them if they want to send naked uh, selfies of themselves to him. It's sad to me when, when he tells me, yeah, there are guys in, in my class right now that have 28 pictures of, of girls in the school that they pass in the hallways of naked selfies on their phone, stored. And this is just the tip of the iceberg, isn't it? And we could not just talk about the younger generation, but we could, we, we could talk about uh, what's going on with my generation and the generation ahead of us. It's led to the loss of innocence. I see such a lack of parenting today. The scars, the wounds. Let's rejoice in this. The gospel, the church thrives. It thrives in places like Corinth. And I'll tell you why. Because what Corinth produces, it produces wounded, scarred, hurting, empty, lonely people. In the gospel especially in its early days, it knew how to hit a culture right in its Achilles heel. And what sex 
is, is producing in our culture today, the same that it produced back then, is an Achilles heel. We have such an opportunity uh, to be hope to despair, to life to death, and all these things. So as, as we saw last week, um, we see Paul's taking on mighty Aphrodite. In fact, he ends chapter 6 by saying, you don't belong to that temple. You don't indulge in that temple because you're God's temple. You're the temple to the living God. And, and, and now in verse 1 of chapter 7, um, where it says, now the matters that you wrote about. Paul's going to finally answer these questions that the Corinthians have. They have a whole series of questions. For the next four chapters, Paul's going to answer these questions. Their first question is, is it good for a, man, for a man or anyone not to have sexual relations with a woman? In other words, is sex dirty? And here's where I need to go down a rabbit trail, because the Greco-Roman world basically held two extreme positions about sex. The first extreme is that sex is just another appetite. If I can look at verse 13 of chapter 6. You Greeks and Romans say, food is for the stomach and stomach for food and God will destroy them both. That's what you say. See, there it is. Sex is just what food is to the stomach, then sex is to the body. When you get hungry, you eat. When you get thirsty, you drink. When you crave sex, you sex. It's just another bodily appetite. In fact, notice the second part of of this Greco-Roman saying. And God will do away with both food and body. Is that a biblical statement? Is God going to do away someday with food and body? No. See, that is platonic dualism, also known as Gnosticism, which is the dominant worldview of the Greek academy at this time. In fact, I think it's the dominant mode of of, of Christian thought today in the West. Because Plato taught that the world consisted of two parts. The visible material world was one part. Then you had the invisible spiritual world as the other part. He believed that a good God created the invisible spiritual world and a demiurge or a Satan created the physical material world. Therefore, he concluded that the invisible spiritual world is to be seen as good and eternal and the physical material world is to be seen as evil. That's why one day God is going to do with our bodies. He's going to do away with food, all that material stuff, physical stuff. And see, what Gnosticism or Platonic dualism teaches is that the real you, the good you, is your soul. And that this good you is trapped, or better yet, entombed in this awful, bad body. And that your body is the enemy of your soul. It's the prison to your soul. And that salvation is your soul one day escaping this bad body. And this bad material universe for a disembodied place called what? Heaven. See, and the sad thing for me right now is that's what some of you think the Bible teaches. This is not what the Bible teaches. God is not going to destroy your body, just like he isn't going to destroy the physical universe. 
He's going to redeem it. He loves it. Now, as it pertains to sex, this platonic dualism, therefore saw the soul as good, the physical body is bad, and so it produced these two extreme responses. The one is verse 13. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what I do with my body. Because my body is not the real me anyway. The real me is my soul. And so what I do with my body is irrelevant. God's going to destroy my body anyway. The other extreme that platonic dualism uh, produced is this ascetic response. Because my body is bad and a prison to my soul, the appetites therefore arise from my body too. They are bad too. Therefore, I starve it. I beat it. I deny it. I try to kill it. Because in this way now, I can set my good soul free from my bad, evil body. This is why to a Gnostic, any kind of pleasure is bad. Whether it's the joy of a good meal, whether it's uh, enjoying a good football game, or good sex, it's all bad. What's a platonic relationship? No physical. We're soulmates. Because sex is dirty. And I could give you so many examples of of Gnosticism in our daily thinking. I mean, when when people pray this prayer, God bless this food to my body. It's premised on, this, on the fact that the food might be bad. See, a Jew would never pray that prayer. They would never ask God to bless the food because to a Jew, food is nothing but a gift from God and to ask him to bless it would be insulting him. We don't bless it, we bless him. And see, this Greek worldview, it's so foreign to a biblical worldview. The Bible teaches that our real self is our whole self, which includes our body. God didn't just create a spiritual world. God made the whole world. He made it all good, and he made it for our joy. He wants us to indulge in it, to enjoy it. And salvation, according to the Bible, is not flight from this god-awful body and this god-awful world. It's redemption of my whole self, which includes my body, and God redeeming all creation. Now, I'm going to continue to go down this rabbit trail because I think what lends confusion for Christians is Paul's discussion of the flesh and the spirit, which he does in Romans, Galatians, and many of his letters. And this word flesh, the original word is in, in the Greek is the word sarx. For us to translate sarx, flesh, what are you thinking? You're thinking flesh. You're thinking platonically. See, flesh is such an unfortunate translation because sarx, this Greek word sarx, is simply your fallen, unregenerate you. Which includes a lot more than just this. 
It includes this. It includes this. It's yourself. It's yourself turned inward. It's, it, it's selfishness. And see, the Corinthians, like many Christians today, are filtering their Bibles through the lens of platonic dualism, that the material, physical world is bad, that the soul is good, and it reduces sex then to either being simply an appetite or sex is dirty. Both of these extremes produce such a low, low view of sex. Who invented sex? Do you realize that God's crowning work in creation is taking two naked people and putting them together? I mean, Adam's like, wow! That bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh is the first erotic song in the Bible. Creation ends with what? Sex. These two naked people becoming one flesh. And see, for people who have a platonic view, the Bible becomes really embarrassing at several points. Because the Bible regularly and openly talks about sex and sexuality, and while it might cause you to blush, trust me, God isn't blushing. He made it. It was his idea. He fashioned us in such a way for sex. He's the one who gave us the appetite for sex. And all for such a high and glorious purpose. Do you know why? Well, first of all, the obvious one is for procreation. The creation mandate is uh, to, to be fruitful and to multiply. But let me take you to some, to some purposes that maybe you might not know. God made sex for the, for the purpose of joy. In Proverbs 5, 18 and 19, God says, Husbands, be ravished with your wife's breasts. Be ravished with them. Song of Solomon, we, we, we read this book and we, we try to spiritualize it by saying this is just an expression of Christ's love for his church and, and I think you can get there. But first and foremost, this book celebrates the joy of sex. And see, I've yet to find a translation that tells us what it really says. <laughs> because our, our, our platonic filter says, no, this is dirty and we've got to take the edge off it. Well, just go to Ecclesiastes right now. Go to chapter 5. You know what, husbands and wives, you've got to read this book regularly. Kind of uh, at the end of, of the first verse, he says, Eat, friends, and drink. Drink your fill of love. Love there is love making. Eat, drink, drink your fill. Then she says, open to me, my sister, my darling, my love, my flawless one. I've, I've taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I'm, I've washed myself. I'm clean. My beloved thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. I arose and found for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened for my beloved. Incredibly sexual. Or... 
And I don't mind right now making you feel really embarrassed because I want you to feel very platonic. Because that's not biblical. We should be most comfortable with this. Or the guy describing the woman in, in, in verses 13, he, he, she says his cheeks are like beds of spice, yielding perfume. His lips are like lilies, dripping with myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with topaz. His body is like polished ivory decorated with, I don't know what that is, but I know what the verse is before that. You talk about taking the, the tra- translating the, the real meaning out of this. It's not his body. It's his male organ. It's like an ivory husk. Now, Jewish boys were forbidden to read this, this, of course, until a certain age, as you can understand. But you got the flavor of the book. God made sex for joy. And now I will bring relief to you. God made sex for marriage. For marriage. Go to Genesis 2. Twenty-four. This is the end of creation, God's crowning work. He brings the woman to the man. He says then, this is why a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves. He leaves and cleaves, or is united to his wife. They become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, if you're comfortable uh, writing in your Bibles, circle the word to be united or cleave, as some of your Bibles have, and circle the word naked. Because cleave means to make a covenant. It means to give oneself exclusively to another for a total life union. This is what it means that the two shall become one flesh. We're not just talking sex here. We're talking about two selves who throw autonomy out the window to form one shared, united life. Now, this doesn't mean that like some Vulcan mind meld or soul meld occurs, okay? But I can tell you what this looks like in my marriage because Libby and I now have been married for 20 years, I am very confident right now that there's hardly a thing that could occur in her life or my life where I don't know how she's going to respond. Or what she thinks about this. Or what she thinks about that. Or how her heart is going to respond to this. And here's the deal. I mean, both of us are very different. She, a lot of times, is over there while I'm here. But we think as one. We live as one. Because we are one. And see, it's within this context of oneness, of cleaving, that God says, this is where you become naked. 
God designed sex within the context of two people who give themselves completely to the other. Two people who are committed to knowing each other all the way to the bottom, literally, and committed to loving each other forever, exclusively. But see, today, people want sex where they can just flippantly give their bodies and not themselves. They don't want to give up control. They don't want to give up their autonomy. So they withhold themselves, but they give their body. And no wonder then, sex feels dirty. No wonder sex feels cheap. No wonder why we have such a low view of sex. In fact, biblically speaking, I think it's impossible for one to just give their body and not their self. In my years of youth ministry, and even still when I counsel someone in their, in their 20s or something, after a bad breakup, they say, they say things like this, I just feel so married to, to, to him. And of course, when I hear that, I, I say, did you have sex with him? And nine times out of ten, they say yes. See, sex makes us feel married. And Why? Hello, because God made sex for marriage. And see, so many people today have deluded themselves into thinking that we can do the naked thing without doing the cleaving thing. That we can have sex without marriage, that we can just give our body and not give ourselves. In fact, when I was in youth ministry, I used to do this. I used to take two pieces of duct tape. I used to put those things together, and I used to have a student right now try to tear these things apart. And when you tear it apart, I mean, it was really hard to tear apart, and also pieces of this tape were, were, were stuck to the other piece of tape. That's exactly what happens in the act of sex. We leave pieces of ourself in that other person. This isn't just another game of tennis. That's why we have terms like fatal attraction. That's why there's so much heartbreak today. That's why there's so much shame and guilt and loneliness and emptiness and despair. Because we have led people to believe you can separate the body from the soul. And we've separated sex from marriage. I got a word to all the young people in the room right now. I hope you're still here. I hope you're listening talking about sex, so you probably are. <laughs> and this is to all the unmarrieds right now. I plead with you to trust God's word. To trust what God says about sex. Sex is not dirty. The furthest thing from it. But it's also not just an appetite. We are not animals. God designed sex for marriage, period. And when placed within the context of a covenant, till death do we part, it's, it, it's beautiful and life-giving, but when we do sex outside the context of cleaving, it's going to destroy, I promise you. And you can save yourself from a lot of heartache, a lot of shame, a lot of destructive wounding by just following and trusting God's word. All right, to those who are married. Verse 2. Wow, and I will go faster. 
Paul says, but since uh, sexual immorality or pernea is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. In other words, Paul commands sex. Thou shalt have sex. (laughs) Now that makes for a great Mother's Day message, doesn't it? (laughs) Husbands, you can thank me later. (laughs) Libby said, you should have preached this message on Father's Day. (laughs) It is what it is, right? (laughs) Look at verse 3. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. See, this is what marriage is. You, you, you don't just get married to have sex, but you have sex to experience marriage. Because sex is the expression of two people becoming one. One bodily, one spiritually, one emotionally, two selves, two selves, one person. Or look at it this way. Every time a husband and a wife have sex, really what they're doing is redoing their wedding vows. Verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. Every Greco-Roman man would say absolutely to that, even the women would. This is the shocker in the same way. The husband does not have authority over his own body. He yields it to his wife. I want to show you something in verse 4. Look at verse 4. Take the words husband and wife. Replace them with father, God the Father, and God the Son. And now when you read verse 4 with, with, with replacing those words with, with, with father and son, really what you have is a wonderful definition of the Trinity. Because think about the Trinity, the perfect oneness of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each existing for the glory of the other. In fact, I think the Trinity might be the best definition of what marriage is because the Father does not have autonomy from the Son and the Spirit, but he yields to the Son and the Spirit. And the Son does not have authority over the Father, but he submits to the Father. And the Spirit likewise. And it's all because of this that we can say about God, three distinct persons, yet one God. That's what our marriages are to reflect, this divine marriage, the place where we lay down our life for the sake of another. And this is what we do also when we have sex. Husbands and wives, listen to this. Sex becomes the place where we lay aside self-pleasure. And we completely give ourselves to the serving and the pleasing of the other. It's not getting, it's giving. Because Christ crucified even affects our sex life. It's not your life for me, it's my life to serve you. In fact, think about how the drama of scripture began. We just, we just read it in, in Genesis 2. It begins in the garden with a human marriage. How does the Bible end? It ends in a renewed garden with the wedding reception of the Lamb, the consummation of heaven and earth, God with us. In fact, every marriage ought to point to the ultimate marriage. And the best sex in the best marriage is nothing more than a foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth. It's the closest thing to heaven. Because being in the arms of your spouse 
It's a foretaste of the joy and the ecstasy of one day being in the arms of Jesus. Sigmund Freud said, you know, a person's spiritual longings, they're just frustrated sexual desires. But the Bible says sexual desire is actually frustrated spiritual longing. Do you see how the Bible's view of sex is beautiful, is so lofty? So does this mean then today, because there's a lot of people in this room who aren't married, does this mean that if we're unmarried that we're lacking something? Well, see, not only does Paul give this revolutionary view of sex and marriage, but he also gives a revolutionary view of being single. Because look at verse 8. Actually, it starts in verse 7. The verse before, he says, but each view. He says, I wish that all of you were as I am, single, unmarried. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that gift. So now to the unmarried, to the singles, and to the widows, I say, it is good for you to stay unmarried as I do. In fact, it, it's, it's better than him saying it's good. He says, it's better. It's better. Now, being single in that day carried with it a, a stigmatism. I mean, it didn't matter if you were a Westerner or an Easterner. It, it made you a second-class citizen. Because in the Eastern world, your family was everything. Your status was directly linked to who your daddy was and who your granddaddy was and who your husband was. And then it was connected to your children and, and having heirs and sons. And, and one's future hope was completely lo- uh, tied to sons and grandsons. And even though the Western world then didn't put this emphasis on, on family, they still put a high emphasis on the individual over and above the family. They still knew that one, one's individual worth was directly linked to the men in their life. Namely, your husband. In fact, you had to become married. In the Roman Empire, widows were fined if they weren't married within two years because being unmarried was illegitimate. Now read verse 8. To the singles and to the widows, I say, it is good. It's so good for you to be unmarried. Paul isn't just okay with them being single. He's calling them to it. And I want you to think about this for a moment because Paul just got done giving them the highest view of sex they'd ever heard. And now he says it's perfectly fine if you live without it. That a single person can be fulfilled and live a fulfilled life without marriage and sex. Now how can Paul say this? A book I recommend a lot of us to read is, is a book by Ernest Becker. He's an agnostic, and his book is called The Denial of Death. And what he notices is that we are really the first culture in the West to disbelieve in God. And, and, and what he also acknowledges that while we disbelieve in God, and that makes us more free than a society he has ever been, he also acknowledges that because we don't have the hope of an afterlife, we don't 
have meaning in this life and no hope in the afterlife puts a lot of pressure on a person to make this life heaven if there is no heaven to come. And so he says one of the ways that the modern person deals with this angst is in finding my true love. In fact, he calls this the romantic solution. He says there's never been a society that has put so much pressure on romance in finding one's true love. And listen to what he writes. He says, after all, what is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to the position of God? We want redemption, nothing less. We want to be rid of our faults, of our feelings of nothingness. We want to be justified, to know that our creation has not been in vain. So we turn to the love partner for the experience of the heroic, for perfect validation. We expect them to make us good through love. After all, what is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to the position of God? It's a powerful statement. I think this is what all the chick flicks are about. (laughs) Boy meets girl, girl meets boy. Somehow they find each other like two needles in a haystack. They then discover that they were perfectly made for each other. They become soulmates. Through all of this, their lives are redeemed. They're justified. They're validated. Heaven has been found. There's a reason why I stand up in movies and yell things. (laughs) It's a fantasy. It's such a lie. I love what he says. He says, no relationship can bear this burden of this expectation. And see, what we have done is we've made an idol out of romance. We've built temples to this idol and we worship it just like we've built temples to the idol of sex and we worship it because we think that through, this, through these things, our life will finally have meaning and it will allow for us to experience something otherworldly and transcendent. It's a fantasy to think that the ache in our hearts that we all feel can be filled by romance. Just like it's a lie that this ache can be filled through sex. Or that the ache can be filled even through marriage. See, we all have an ache in our hearts. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 says that God has placed eternity in our hearts. In other words, our hearts ache for the eternal. And that ache is for the eternal God. And Becker is right when he says we all want redemption, nothing less. We all want to be rid of our faults and our feelings of nothingness. We all want to be justified to know that our creation has not been in vain. We all turn to someone or something for the experience of the heroic, for perfect validation. We expect them to make us good through love. This is our ache. And there's only one who can satisfy our ache. Your maker. 
You and I have been made for God and our souls are restless until they rest in him. We will all despair until we find our meaning in him. We will ultimately all feel worthless and our lives will feel, feel worthless until we find our worth in him. We will feel lost until we're found. We're insecure until we find our security in him. And so singles don't make an idol out of marriage. In fact, Paul says later in chapter 7, he says marriage has all kinds of troubles. And I can say amen to that. It's the hardest thing in the world to be married. But it's good. He says don't make an idol out of romantic love. Don't, Don't make an idol out of sex. I remember being in college, literally in my heart, wishing that God would not return because I didn't want him to return before I had sex. <laughs> Don't leave me hanging up here, guys. <laughs> oh, man. Here's what we have in Christianity and only Christianity. Our maker is also our lover. He is a spousal God who made us for spousal love and as our husband, he lays his life down for his bride. And it's his love that alone redeems us and justifies us and replaces our feelings of nothingness with dignity and worth. We are actually made more than good through his love. And the only one who knows us all the way to the bottom also says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. He knows everything about us, yet he's ravished with us. And just think about this. If his love is everlasting, isn't that the reason we're everlasting? We are everlasting only because his love for us is everlasting, making us everlasting. And see, this is what our heart aches for. And all those temples that our world builds and says, come worship here and you'll be satisfied, whether it's the temple to Aphrodite or the temple to romance or the temple to marriage, uh, we can make idols out of almost anything. We have the temple to sport. We have the temple to achievement. We, we, we have idols and temples everywhere in our society today. And if only I get that, then I'll be validated. And if only I could get this guy, then my life will be redeemed. And only if I were married, that would justify my existence. And this is why Paul can look at singles and widows and say, stay right where you are if you can stay sexually pure. In verses 10 to 11, he says, if you're unhappily married, stay. In verses 12 to 14, if you're married to an unbeliever, stay in that marriage. In verses 15 to 16, if your spouse wants out, let him out. Don't hang on. Don't cause a ruckus. Just stay Verses 21 to 24, he says, even if you're a slave, remain as you are. Remain a slave, for you're free. Paul says, you're bought with a price. You're ransomed by the only one that matters. See, the reason all of us can stay, whether we're in a tough marriage or single or widowed, 
or even at the bottom of the social food chain is because our dignity and our worth and our status and our satisfaction is not derived from this world. That's why Paul says in verse 29, look, time is short. Verse 31, he says the world is passing away, and it is. Because there is a better world coming. The wedding feast of the Lamb, the consummation of all things. We have such an incredible future hope. And we don't have to make this life heaven. And hit your heart to anything in this world, whether it be romance, sex, career, marriage, family, I don't care what it is. When it passes away, and it will, you will pass away with it. But hit your heart to God. Verse 34, make him your aim. Verse 35, give the Lord your undivided devotion. Give him your whole heart. Because yes, the world is passing away in the age to come. The new heavens and the new earth will be here. And even the best sex and the best marriage is but a foretaste. Stephen Coffey writes a book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. One of his habits that he has in this book is keep the end in mind. Successful people always keep the end in mind. That is exactly what Paul is saying. He's saying live with the end in mind. Live as though you really believe God is going to keep his promise of new heavens and new earth. And so stay. Let's be content right where we are. Let's fix our eyes on him. Let's make him our aim. Because as C.S. Lewis said, aim for heaven and you get earth. Aim for earth, you get neither. Let's pray. God, get our eyes off the things of this world. Get our eyes on you, Jesus. Get our eyes off ourselves. Help us to be content because we know a new heavens and a new earth and a final consummation yet awaits. And even the best things to be enjoyed in this world pale in comparison to the new world that is to come. We pray this all in your name. Amen. Thank you.